Konnichiwa. Welcome to the Jandals in Japan podcast. Kia ora, Catherine. Hi, Jane. What have you got for us today? Oh, actually, I saw something really interesting in the Nikkei about Japan and e-money. Mm-hmm. I know you're very fancy with your e-money, but Japan as a country really isn't that hot on the e-money side of things. They're mm. getting used to it now. But I saw this Nikkei article about Japan going completely cashless for the Osaka Expo that's coming up in 2025. I thought right. that's quite interesting. They're going to expect 28 million people to visit the Expo mm. and nothing is going to be cash. It's going to be absolutely all cashless. Mm. And supposedly this is the first time it's been done for the Expo around the world. And it will be the very first time it's going to be completely without any mm. cash. Mm. Oh, so I wow. thought that was a very interesting article. Interesting that probably the people who will struggle the most will not be the people coming from overseas, but the people in Japan, right? That's saying it. That's mm. saying it. Yeah, I'm still getting used to people not using it, using it. Sometimes in the taxi, you can use cashless. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes it takes longer for your card to be processed than it does handing over a, mm. you know, a thousand yen to pay for mm. a taxi ride. How about your experience? You seem to be quite up with it with all your cashless stuff that you're doing. Oh, you got I tell you, to tell? I've got all the cashless things happening. Well, recently went to Tokyo Dome to watch a professional baseball game, and it's a completely cashless ah. place, right? So it says everywhere it's so cashless it yes <laughs> they, they they advertise it that tokyo dome is cashless so if you want to get a beer or buy any food you have to have some kind of card or mm. app to pay for things so um the the girls who go around selling the beer right they show up with their little card reader things and you just yeah. tap your card or they scan your phone and app on your phone you can buy beer from them the chap in front of me bought seven beers with his phone. I was watching him. <laughs> Good on him. Helping beers. the economy. Helping oh the economy. God. Anyway, the city where I live has really been pushing uh, these different kinds of e-money or different apps that you can use for cashless payments. And it was such a juicy offer that we really had to get on it and sign up for all of them. So there were three <laughs> apps you could join. And if you spent 10,000 yen within one month, at a certain supermarket chain in our city, you got hmm. 30% cash back. 30%. That so is great. 3,000 yen back for spending 10,000 yen wow. using one of three. And you could wow. use all three. So we, my husband and I both used all three apps, got 3,000 from each one. <laughs> <laughs> we made quite a lot of money. It was quite a lucrative is, uh, month for us. Yeah. What an so, incentive. Yeah, great incentive. And it's just to get people using these things because there's oh. a little bit of a uh, sort of hurdle. You have to get yourself uh, registered and put your ID in there and they want some kind of photo ID to confirm who you are, connect mm. up your bank account, etc. Once you get going, it's very, very easy. So to get people to get over that hurdle, they offered that very, very juicy um, offer, which we oh. happily <laughs> took advantage of. And Brilliant. now I have all of these different ways to pay for things um, <laughs> well, that I probably I'll... won't use because I do have my favorite one. 
one yes. that we tend to use more than anything. But yeah, when you go into a shop, it's like you look at all the little logos mm -hmm. next to thing. Mm -hmm. What do you have? <laughs> you know, which one shall I use? But yeah, definitely a certain there are certainly there are a couple that are more convenient than others to use. And uh, definitely any every store has PayPay, for example. Yeah. Right. Well, I think that's probably the one I should go and sign up with. And people listening will be going, why have you not already signed up? Well, I have tried a few times, but my last name is a real tricky one. Like, oh, that would really be a pain in the bum. Tricky mm. because of the dash after court, right? Mm. It's a long mm. sound and apps don't really like me registering that. And so I end up registering just Okoneru and it doesn't sound like me. Uh, and so I have to prove who I am. Mm, and if I yeah. send some other information, it doesn't match. So I've, yep. I've actually had a big F for failure on my mm. e-money uh, applications so far. But I might mm -hmm. have you help me out with that one next time. Mm. Well, some of them are more tricky than others. But if you cannot you know, get that thing connected with your bank account, you can always put cash into them using an ATM in 7-Eleven or convenience store. Mm. If you did want to have that uh, option, you can the charge them up using it at the ah, convenience store. Yeah, that is good. Just well, those it looks like anyone struggle. who's going to come through here in, in 2025 to go to the Osaka Expo, which apparently is going to be amazing because it's showcasing technology. So they have to kind of show up with showing technology, don't they? It's going to be amazing. And everyone has to use this Expo digital wallet. Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to buy inside and outside. So get yourself uh, ready for that if you're coming through to Osaka. Mm. Uh, just remember too that Japan also still does quite like cash, especially uh, in some places. I went to a medical doctor in the last week. Well, I said, could I pay cash? And he went, oh, we only take cash. So that oh was Oh my very God, they had no e-money options, Nothing. not even pay pay? Nothing. And even wow. just rung it up on this little sort of, little machine that had big <laughs> big numbers raised off the top of you know went flat against the surface yeah, yeah, of them, yeah. raised up chong 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 as he wrote he tapped the numbers out and a little piece of paper billowed out and mm -hmm. he put his little signature on there and a little hunko you know stamp on there and gave it to mm, me as well me. that was very interesting i felt very retro there uh yeah. yeah you just never know when you'll stumble across somewhere that's cash only still so yeah it does happen Japan. especially in the regions uh mm. and even well tokyo that's a little bit out of central mm. tokyo but there mm -hmm. you go interesting yeah, so, yeah what have we got coming up this week in our episode well our episode is with john walsh and we've known john for a number of years and really really excited to have him because he's an urban farmer he's an urban consultant or he's an urban farmer who consults on urban farming uh, he's briefed so many people two thousand people apparently on uh, how to grow healthy food in an urban environment and we're really happy to have him on the show today there's so many juicy pieces in here uh, and we think they'll be really great for anybody who's listening and following the show uh, for tips for doing business in Japan. Mm, let's hear it from John. Kia ora, John. Welcome to the Jandals in Japan podcast. Great to have you on the show today. Good morning. Nice to be here. So, John, we like to start with a warm-up question. So, our warm-up question for you is, what's your favorite Japanese vegetable that's not well known outside of Japan that you recommend everybody give a try? Oh, I'd say, um, daikon. Uh, yeah. Giant Japanese radish. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. what it comes to. Yeah. 
yeah, no, I've um, I'm been sort of growing um, that myself. Um, there's like a mini daikon that's possible to grow. And then there's the regular ones you buy from the supermarkets. And then there's the huge ones that the farmers grow, which are yeah. which be like twice the size of the regular ones. Yep, mm. they're great. How do you eat your mini daikons? Are they different? Like in, so like, are they more for salads or they should be boiled or how do you oh, uh, prefer to eat them? You just sort of basically use them just like you'd use a uh, normal radish, just sort of chop them up and throw them in into uh salad yeah 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 we like to have the um the boiled stewed one that's one of our favorites in the winter time but that's we need like the really long massive ones that the farmers get and we chop them into big circles and boil them yeah yeah Yeah, yeah, that's really delicious really warming right in the winter all right, you, Catherine, what's your favourite Japanese vegetable that you recommend everybody tries? Oh, you just got me thinking about daikon, but I do love a warm daikon and also the daikon salad is just... Yeah, yeah. I was thinking, to me, renkon, lotus root, it's my favourite. I love it naturally. I also love it, you know, and it sometimes comes as a tempura, deep fried. I absolutely have fallen in love with renkon. I love the shape of it. It looks cute. I love when you bite through, you can see all the. Yeah, such a great. I just love the texture. Yeah, texture. It's very good. It's got lots of fiber. It's my go to vegetable if I had a choice. Yeah. Mm. Jane, you? My favorite Japanese vegetable would have to be gobo, mm. which is burdock root in English. Very long. Just looks like something you can't imagine how you would eat it. Quite tricky to prepare, but it really adds a great flavor to the foods that you put it in, like tonjiru, that's pork soup, or takikomi gohan, which is the rice that has been uh, cooked with flavors and bits of meat and vegetables in it. So I'm hungry. Yeah. I'm hungry yeah. now. <laughs> Look at us, so healthy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. from, from gobor chips. Um, just like gobor chips back home, but they're, yeah, they're basically uh, sliced and fried. And yeah. you can have even with like um, um, sour cream, just like with kumo chips. Yeah, really good. Yeah. There you go. So those are our top tips of Japanese vegetables to try if you haven't already tried them or if you're new to Japan. It takes a while to, to give these things a go. Um, but once you get into them, yeah, they're really, really delicious. Fantastic. Well, John, so excited to have you. We'll be putting your full bio into the show notes later. But tell us about your background, where you came from in New Zealand, and how you came to be starting the urban farming business in Japan. We understand it had sort of inspiration from the unfortunate, shall we say, aftermath of the Christchurch earthquake and Tohoku earthquake. Please tell us a little bit there about your background. Basically, I, I, um, I went to Auckland university and did a um, three-year science degree uh, majoring in applied statistics and then basically um, got into working for um, quite a few large um, New Zealand companies including the tax department, the statistics department, Bendon Laundry, uh, Golden Bay Cement and I was basically doing IT and data management jobs um, for them and it was all basically IT and helping companies to increase their profit margins and then I went to the UK for two years and worked for uh, Filofax UK uh, doing a lot of production planning at their Filofax factory. You'll probably uh, recall the Filofaxes were hot items oh, in the 90s. Oh, the yes. season license. Yeah, had the Filofax diary, <laughs> yeah. And I moved here in 20, year, 20 years ago now, uh, 2002, I think it was, and got married the next year. And then basically uh, got into professional writing and editing and proofreading for a number of um, magazines. 
and translation companies basically um, don't get a thing for translation companies and writing a whole lot of articles for a whole bunch of like magazines here. And I yeah, basically switched from IT to professional writing and editing, and that was fine. Until uh, 2011 and the earthquake struck in Christchurch. And then a couple of weeks later, there was the massive one up here in Tohoku. And um, my cousin was in Christchurch at the time of the Christchurch quake. And he was in the tax department office directly across the road from the uh, CTV building, uh, Christchurch TV. And right after the first quake, he basically rushed outside of the tax office and crossed and then, then the um, CTV building was just a pile of rubble that had just collapsed. And he, was, he ran up onto this pile of what was left of the, of the CTV building. And he was helping. And my auntie told me about this. And, oh, my God, that was a shocker. That was a, that was a real shocker. And it it's sort of and I created this connection. Um, I wasn't there. I was here in Japan. But it created a, a connection that still cuts. Yeah, um, and then after those two quakes, which happened, there was only like two and a half weeks between them, I think. Yes. Um, and they basically just made me think that if a massive quake the size of either of them hit Tokyo, which it could, and it just pumped like two quakes last night, so we're always aware of earthquakes. I just thought, right, um, if um, there was massive damage here and um, supermarkets got destroyed and the roads where the trucks carrying food to supermarkets got blocked, I just thought, um, where would food come from if we um, suddenly got to the point where the markets were not functioning, so we couldn't just walk down the road to buy food. And at that time, my wife and my daughter was three years old, and I just thought, right, um, what's the plan? If, if an earthquake, a massive one hits Tokyo, and we can't buy food, and we've got 15 or so million people living here in yeah. Tokyo, and many people, I'm sure, have emergency supplies which would probably last a week at most. Yeah. And the, and the scary thing is, is what would happen um, when people's supplies ran out and you suddenly found you had no water and no food and kids who were thirsty and hungry. So I thought, right, um, what's the deal? What's the answer? And I didn't know what, which scared the pants off me. So I just thought, right, where would food come from? And then I thought, okay, um, it would be good if I had some at home. So I thought, okay, that's, that sounds like gardening. Sorry. I went out to the local 100 yen shop and bought a flower pot and some soil and a packet of spinach seeds and sowed the seeds. And a few weeks later, I had some spinach uh, leaves. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. This is magic. And then I just did that again, bought some more pots and some more soil and more seeds. And within a month or two, I had a tiny little uh, back garden growing herbs and different vegetables. And I was like, man, this is cool. This is really cool. And I sort of realized that having a home garden is, uh, can act as an emergency food supply in case of an emergency. And it's also fresh fruit. And if you grow it yourself, it's going to be really cheap. It's immediately accessible, which is the key point. Yeah. So that, that was exciting. And then my wife said, oh, you should probably hire a community garden plot in our town that we live in here in North Tokyo. has got lots of community gardens. So I did. And I... Uh, started renting a tiny 15 square meter plot, which is slightly wider than a standard car parking space. And this Ooh. in t- 2012, I grew like 1,600 tomatoes and about 400 cucumbers and a stack of lettuces and the herbs and all this food. And started giving it to the neighbors because I, I, 
I was drawing so much. And then I just thought, man, um, this is amazing. And I took my daughter to the garden and taught her how to sow seeds. And she picked it up, bang, just like that. And that made me think, oh, I could maybe teach kids. And prior to that point, I hadn't taught anything. I've never taught English. They have no professional teaching skills or experience prior to to that point. And then I I contacted a Tokyo International School. I'd written an article about the founder, uh, Patrick Newell, many years ago when I was working for a magazine. And I just contacted him and said, hey, uh, do you grow food at school? And he said, no, but we're interested. Can you come in? So I went in. So I just went in and I had a, this was back in the day when we had um, photos. So I took a whole lot of uh, photos of the food I had been growing in my community garden patch, covered the table with, with these photos. Mm. And they hired me on the spot to teach. But the problem with that was I had nothing to teach. Uh, (laughs) No experience and no lessons. So I spent the next next three months cooking up 10 urban farming lessons to teach the students. And um, that was the start. What a humble beginnings from just mm. you having this realization that what happened in Christchurch could happen in Tokyo. And I also had very similar thoughts when I saw that happen in Christchurch. I thought that could happen here in Fukushima where I live. And mm. that was definitely an unpopular opinion at the time mm. because everybody thought, no, we have a nuclear power station here that the government would never have built one here we could have a big disaster like that happen. <laughs> Famous last words just two weeks before that actually happened. Yeah, and then you went out and bought one pot, a bag of seeds and a of soil and did a mini experiment that worked. It worked out. And off you went. Wow. And tell us where you are today with this urban farming. What's happening? It's been, it's been a dream that I never had. I'm really... <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, you I, never knew you had, wanted to do this. That's fantastic. No um, I had no experience uh, growing fruit. Uh, my mum and all of my grandparents back home, they were keen gardeners, but none of them taught me anything about growing fruit. Right. I might get onto that a bit later, but uh, yeah. And so, yeah, I um, right now I've been um, into um, urban farming now for 12 years, since 2012, and I've basically uh, been, the I think, the only native English-speaking professional urban farming consultant and instructor in the whole country for the last 10 years until I hired a partner to work with me who's now number two. Okay. <laughs> and I've gone from teaching teaching urban farming programs at one um, international school per growing season, of which there's two per year, from 2012 until about 2020, just teaching at one school. Then I uh, was taken on by two other schools. And last year I was teaching at six schools, um, which is great. Pretty difficult because there's only five working days in a week, and five school days in a week. Just last November, I, I ran a massive multi-grade um, urban farming project at um, the British school in Tokyo. Um, they're the f- first school ever I've come across here that is introducing urban farming into multiple grades. And the project that I ran with my partner, we taught all of the junior school, 800 kids from kindergarten up to grade six. We were basically going around three classes per morning, uh, both of us. So we're teaching six classes, Ooh. about 20 students each from Monday to Friday, one week in the middle of November. In one week, we trained 800 students. And then we did the same thing. We just completed another project like this at St. Mary's International School, also in Tokyo, Ooh. training 400 students uh, from kindergarten to grade five. And we just launched the outdoor program there on Monday. 
Brilliant. We went from from running indoor introductory urban farming programs for seven weeks from January to February at the school. And then we kicked off an outdoor program on Monday. It's gone absolutely nuts. And it's just such a blast. It really is good because I'm teaching kids how to improve their health and hopefully put them on a healthy trajectory for the rest of, of their lives. Once they know, hey, that we can actually grow healthy food. Um, hopefully they will start at some point and teach others. Have you had feedback that they've gone home and done things at home or started oh, yeah. their own? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's been quite a few kids. So um, they based, uh, they've been so excited when they go through my programs that they go home and start gardens and then um, take pictures and send the pictures back to the teachers. That's brilliant. But, That's um, lovely. Yeah. It's, it's great stuff. But the thing is, the really weird thing about all this is none of it's rocket science. And I know that many of our, of our mums and dads and grandparents and people in every generation before us, this is exactly what they've done, but they weren't as excited. Because they just had to do it, probably. And I know. Well, yes, I think, they did. Yeah. But at the same time, it's the most joyful hobby. And apparently in New Zealand, gardening is the most popular hobby amongst New Zealanders. Yes, I didn't know yeah. that. <laughs> There you go. Yes, there you go. Um, and, you know, I grew up, dad had a, a garden that was all vegetables, a massive garden. We grew f- kiwi fruit. I learned, you know, about the male female plant of the kiwi fruit. We had a lovely big section where you used to play cricket as well. And around the garden, that was sort of mum's job with that part of the garden. And so I grew up with gardening and just love it. I don't think we appreciate it as Kiwis when we've got it around us. It's the right, obvious right. that we miss. I think so too. I love how you said though that it's a dream you never knew you had yes. and it's a skill you never knew you had. It gets me thinking, and I think you're the same, Jane, how you may all have some skills or things that we do that are in our zone of genius as Kiwis here and we don't even recognize that we might be great bakers or we might be people who like you were doing you said, writing or something that we think oh, I just do that it's just something I do but it could be leveraged pretty well for you know you to, to do a business here basically yeah um, well, I think um, that the dream is is to basically find something that that you love and that pays you yep because um, <laughs> if you get yeah. to the point where you love what you do then your work is probably not you probably won't consider what you do as work. Yeah? You'll, it'll just be fun and you'll be being paid for it. I mean, find something better than that. You probably won't. At the schools, are the teachers also getting involved or is it, are they standing and watching and dying to get into it or are they also getting their hands into the soil nice and dirty? Oh, yeah. It just depends on the, on the teacher. But um, this, and the surprising thing is, is that almost all of the teachers who asked me to teach their classes um, at um, these international schools, almost all of them, are in exactly uh, the same position I am. Either their mum or, or their dad or their grandparents are farmers or gardeners. So these teachers, just like you were saying, Catherine, they've seen their parents growing food and they inherently know that growing food is good, but they never learned themselves. And in my case, personally, with these teachers, they've come across this Kiwi guy, John Walsh, who's providing some urban farming services. And I think it triggers something in their memories of probably playing games and running around their mums and dads' gardens when they were kids. And then they think, oh, man, I've seen this. I've seen vegetables like this before. My mum used to grow them back in New Zealand, back in England, whatever. And I think what I do is that it's actually triggering some very deep memories for people who are enthusiastic about what I do. It's great. 
And we and in the case with most of the teachers that I work with, they're always telling me about, oh yeah, back in Sydney, my mum's growing this and I'm sending videos of of, of your lessons <laughs> to my mum and dad back in Australia yeah, and stuff. They've got a conne- they've got a connection. That's wonderful. It's really good. Your work's having ripples internationally. So John, you mentioned that you have brought a partner into the business because mm. things are growing, literally. Mm. Tell us a little bit more about who this person is. We'd yeah, love to the number two. Um, he's Richard Mayers. He's from New York. Before I actually uh, started to work with me, he was a um, hedge fund manager for many years. And when his wife and he had um, two baby daughters, Richard sort of basically completely lost motivation for what he was doing in the finance sector. And he started to think about his future and the future of his daughters. And he basically came to realize that the world that they were basically moving into didn't look particularly positive. And so he basically uh, became really motivated to help to create a uh, better world for them, which sounds like a, um, a cliche, but it's, it's much more than that. And so Richard, he got in touch with me through a mutual uh, contact. And he basically said, I like what you do. Can I join you? And when I found out about his experience, which was zero, he had no experience teaching anything at all. And he had never grown food before. I thought, okay, this, I don't know how far this is, is I going to go. But what really caught my eye with Richard was he was really, really enthusiastic about um, what I was doing. And it sort of really made me think that if I'm going to partner with someone, what kind of person do I want? And I listed three things. And number one was, do they have teaching skills? Number two, do they have food growing skills? And number three, how enthusiastic are they for growing food and teaching? And then I quickly thought about those three things and reject them and put the enthusiasm at the top as the most important uh, personal characteristic that I'm looking for in a potential partner. Because if they are only enthusiastic for the money, then they will not, they will lose motivation for the work. And so I thought, right, the most important thing in a potential partner for me is they've got to, they got to be enthusiastic about growing food and spreading the good news about how to do that. And he is. And I thought, right, I can teach skills. I can teach teaching skills. I can teach him how to grow food. That's the easy thing. And so I basically um, asked Richard to come along and help me co-teach at one school. That, that was back in, I think, March last year. And since March last year, I've got him into seven international schools now. He's been co-teaching with me for 12 months. And he's awesome. He's awesome. He's I'm extremely happy with how he's been helping out. And he's now getting business of his own. Brilliant. Um, and if at some point he breaks away in the future and, and does more of what we learn together, I'll be extremely happy because my mission is to tell as many people as possible how to grow food themselves without chemicals and if he continues that mission bring it on go for it what's this business doing business in japan taught you about japan i was thinking about this kind of thing last night and i thought that being a kiwi well actually being a a non-japanese here in japan you can't really import your your reputation because um in most cases like unless you're super famous like like an all black or some kind of sports famous cook no one's going to know you here when you move. So it doesn't really matter how famous you are back home. You've got to start from scratch. And here in Japan, like most of us know, customer service is king. The customer is king. And what I've learned is what I call the um, the PPP, the three P's. 
yeah, it's one of the, the three P's. I say that, and that three P's are um, uh, to be basically uh, prompt, be professional, and be polite. And especially be polite in Japan. I know in New Zealand doing business, there's a lot, a lot more flexibility. You don't have to be. You can be a bit, bit more sharp around the edges when you when you're communicating, depending on how good or not a business relationship is. But here, I think it's really important just to be polite at all times and be professional, especially considering how massive the market is here. Because if you create a good reputation for yourself, you can go a long way with multiple millions of people here yeah. as a potential market, as opposed to back home where it's tiny. Yeah, yeah the three Ps, that's awesome. You've, you've summed that up really nicely. Promptness, professionalism, and politeness. This goes very, very far. And you're right. You are starting from scratch when you come here. You have to rebuild that, no matter how famous you are anywhere in the world, you may yeah. be still completely unknown here in Japan. But yeah. also, you have an opportunity to stand out quickly. And I think that's something that uh, Japanese people have said to me, and they're very envious of me, is mm. that you stand out. And it's yeah. easy to stand out because you're not just one of a million other people, um, Japanese people, for example. So be aware of that, how easily you do stand out and, and make the most of it, but also be polite, professional, and prompt because it will be noticed when you're not. Yeah. Is there something, John, here about the system in Japan, my business system, or the way that you've been able to interact, get your negotiations and contracts with the schools? And I know you've done something with the Grand Hyatt as well. How is there something about that that's a little bit different in Japan that perhaps, say, Kiwis should be aware of, the way of approaching? I know you've talked about your three Ps, but what mm. does that lend itself to in the way that you approach people uh, in the system here? I guess we'll call it a system, ecosystem in Japan of doing business. Any tips there? I think what made me stand out um, in the first place was what Jane touched on uh, and like before, simply the fact that we're different. We're not a local. Um, and in terms of like the Grand Hyatt Hotel, just briefly, that was a, um, and my company was hired to install a four raised bed organic garden for the Grand Hyatt Tokyo in 2019. And they basically wanted a on-site garden so that the chef could tell um, the guests that, hey, uh, this food on this salad that I've just put in front of you comes from that garden right outside that window there. And the marketing department wanted a garden so that they could basically promote that they had an on-site vegetable garden as opposed to a flower garden. Yep. So um, in, in terms of um, first contact with companies, um, I just took a risk and put myself out there. And I was dealing with English speakers in the first place, which probably made a big difference. They knew that there would be no communication problems. Yeah, that's a really good question, Gaffer. That's a really good question. And I think... I think you've just given a really good answer, John. So, oh, yeah. right? You're yeah. putting yourself oh. out there and... Perhaps if maybe if Japanese is not your best area, yeah. then you approach people who are in your native language. They can find their their way of communicating with their team in Japanese if they need to. But that's it. Getting yourself out there, I think, is your key point there. Yeah. Um, and quite possibly what I did with the Grand Height was that no one had ever approached them before about installing a garden on site. There you go. Um, so just being like a first mover, um, if you're the first person wow. who contacts a yeah. potential client with a new service and no one else does, Ooh. then why wouldn't they say yes if you're good? 
Yeah, they realized this is the thing that they didn't know they needed, right? It's an amazing <laughs> yes, marketing that came yeah, from it, yeah? It's a dream that yeah. they never knew they needed, oh. right? Oh. Interesting. Yeah. It reminded me of like in Christchurch in the Botanic Gardens, there's the curator's house and they have a, a little garden outside there and they profess that the food that is on your salad here and even the edible flowers are all from that garden out there. And it used mm. to be like, wow, how that okay. garden to yeah. table was amazing. Yeah. You made me yeah, think. To people. I love that answer. Thank you so, so much. What other things might be um, helpful for Kiwis to be doing here to be successful in business? Is there anything that you can recommend? Or actually, perhaps you nurture gardens very, very much so. You nurture mm-hmm. your vegetables. How do you also nurture your customers here? I basically, I try to educate as many people as possible simply by continually talking about um, urban farming and growing fruit. And I would, I'm quite happy to be accused of plastering the internet with um, food photos and information about the schools that I teach at. Um, I'm quite happy to be accused of that, crow. But there's a mission behind it. Um, there's like a, a purpose behind all that. And that's to basically show that I'm an expert or I profess to be an expert. And the key to my marketing is to basically show and clearly demonstrate that I can do what I'm trying to market. And this is a really big deal for me because I'm not a marketing expert, but from what I've found personally, I think that the best way to market yourself is to basically um, do what you say that you can provide first, get the photos if possible, and then you can promote yourself. And because you've done what you are trying to promote and sell, people will see, hey, this person's not just talking about, I can install a garden. I, yeah. You should get a garden. Yeah. I actually did it. You're saying. You're saying, times. you're saying you've done it and here's the photos. And yeah. I think for me, that's the, that's an amazing way to market because it shows commitment that you can actually do what you profess to do. It shows enthusiasm and it shows ability. So to me, um, the best way to market yourself is to basically do what you are uh, trying to market and promote first. Yeah. So that people can yeah, see you right. talk. This, yeah. this guy, this guy walking the talk. He's not yeah. just saying he can do X, he's done it. Yeah. And so it brings me to um to the famous Nike slogan, uh, just do it. <laughs> I've found that's that's that, that's inspired a whole lot of people around the world. But I find that's that actually quite, I find that quite depressing because that clearly implies that you haven't done it. I think that should be just done it, not just do it. I've just done it, right? It's, it's a better one, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people just sitting around thinking of all the great things they could possibly do and they're not actually doing any of them. Yeah. Mm. You're definitely getting out there and telling people or showing people what you can do and that you can help them. Yeah, walking that mm. talk. That's, and that goes a long way in Japan, right? I often hear that you know, Japanese people are watching you, right? They're observing you and they're watching what you do more or almost as much as what you say right because what you do is very important so yeah that's great and to everybody keep that front of mind and um, your actions speak very loudly in japan that's for sure mm. yep one more way i think um, to to work with customers is to basically offer tasters of what you do now this of course depends on exactly what you're offering but like you know when you go to large uh, supermarkets sometimes um sometimes you'll find people uh, like staff offering like free bits of cake or free kimchi yeah. or these yeah. stew to me is an incredibly powerful marketing technique yeah. because you don't just get to look at the product through the packet. 
and check what it looks like and the color and so on, you actually get to taste it. And I think once you get to taste something or use it, you'll be much more likely to buy it if it's good. And um, so I basically, I'm uh, using that idea in, in my business too. And I'm, and especially when I go to schools and meet with management of a potential school plant, mm. I'll try and take some tomatoes, put them on the boardroom table and say, try these, I grow them. And then say that you and your students can grow uh, food like this right here at your school. It's a taste test of a service. Well, that's your yeah. CV, isn't it? That's your CV in action. Yeah. I'm kind of lucky because I uh, deal in uh, food that can be consumed. <laughs> but yeah. that idea can be, can yeah. be tweaked. Just yeah. offer a trial. I'm like a free trial. A free trial. Sure. So people can actually experience your product or service. And rather than just read about it in some flash glossy brochure. Exactly. Yeah. And that happens all across Japan. Everything yeah. like come and have a free trial of golf lesson. I recently started golf and I got a one hour free with a golf pro to see oh. if I wanted to join up. And after that, I was keen. You know, I was like, yep, I'm doing this. If I hadn't had that, I'd be like, kind of like yeah. but they invested that one hour with me and yeah. now they've, they've got many, many thousands of yen out of me in the Thessaloniki. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to see you working with more restaurants and things around Tokyo. Wouldn't it be fantastic. fantastic to have this kind of thing going on becoming mm -hmm. quite common? But and a lot of them do focus on flowers. I mean, I was at Tokyo American Club just yesterday, John, and they're redoing the garden at the front entrance, well, mm. where people pull up for their parking. And oh, it's yep, yep. laid out like a Japanese garden, but... Mm. That's got me thinking, you know, there's a New Zealand chef there, so you oh, never know, um, there might be a section of the land that they might like to devote to yeah, well, um, you know, vegetables. Put a big example. smile on your face so there. You never know. Yeah. Um, I've really you never uh, checked that. Yeah, I've uh, contacted. Lindsay, are you listening? Uh, Lindsay, text listen. years ago, yeah, yeah. They've certainly got the potential to have exactly. large gardens there. They've got the sections there, right? They've got the restaurants, so yeah. Yeah. Um, I know you've been really diligent in preparing for this episode today with us. Is there something that you also prepared that we haven't asked you yet that you'd like to uh, us oh. to ask you or give the answer to? And one more thing that I, I really want to mention is um is I'm basically getting into well not just getting into I'm focusing on school food um, donations and getting uh, students at the schools that are at the schools that I teach at to basically donate. Um, some of the food that they grow to our second harvest Japan food bank here in oh, Tokyo. Brilliant. Uh, yeah. The bottom line here is um, I kicked off a uh, CSR strategy back in about 2013 called um, Grow for Good. And the strategy, the concept behind Grow for Good can be encapsulated in four words, grow some, give some. So the plan is to encourage as many schools and corporates too as possible to install um, on-site gardens, grow mm -hmm. food for the staff and students, and donate the excess to uh, food banks. Ooh. And school, I've been doing this with schools since 2013, and, um, and as the years go by, usually the school gardens get larger and larger. And so the harvests get bigger and the donations uh, do too. Ooh. And oh, yeah. in the last three years, I've, um, I've organized some massive donations from a few International school fair, uh, 12, 13, 14, 15 kilograms of um, student grown food to wow. Second Harvest Japan Food Bank, which basically gives it away to people that need it in Tokyo. 
same day, straight away. Wow. Um, they, yeah, get, people walk, they get fresh food. They get fresh food. Um, wow, yeah, brilliant. It's um, also it's, teaching the students, isn't it, to know about the fact that they're, you know, in a, a, a really great place and there are people in Tokyo and other parts mm -hmm. of Japan that are not. And so helping yeah. others is also very important. So you're teaching another yeah. social yeah. skill, right? Yeah, yeah. Acknowledgement that there are others who need help and this is a way yeah. we can do it. That's certainly true, Catherine, yeah. And um, the big deal about that is that um, specifically with the international schools, um, most of the kids come from rich families. And um, I'm, I won't mention names here, but um, one of the schools that, I'm, um, that I've been working at, um, the head of school said that most of our students uh, uh, mainly focus on the next family ski trip and the next game that they're going to buy for their, um, right. for their device. And when I mentioned uh, the fact the school could start donating food grown by their own students, he immediately thought, this is great because it will help our kids to refocus from just thinking about themselves to looking outward and focusing on, hey, we can actually use food that we grow at our school and help other people. Exactly. From consumption um, to so donation. It's changing. Yeah. It's, inwards, oh, outwards. It's helping to change students' focus from just themselves to looking outwards. Yeah. And so when I heard that, I was like, hey, that's a, that's a big deal. Marvelous. And so my goal with um, uh, Grow for Good is to basically sign up as, as many schools and companies um, um, using rooftop gardens mm -hmm. to grow as much food as possible on site in Tokyo and so grow some for themselves. Yeah. Uh, There's so many spots, John. I mean, yeah. Otemachi um, One, they've all got spots that can be yeah, available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, to basically, yeah, and to basically uh, get as many schools and companies to donate food to the food banks and then flood the food banks with fresh Tokyo-grown food. And that, and that will help to alleviate hunger issues in Tokyo. But then just imagine if that strategy was transplanted into Kyoto, Osaka, um, Shanghai, Kuala Lumpur, London, Auckland, Sydney, San Francisco, you name it, worldwide. That mm -hmm. simple strategy of grow some, give some, where people yeah. who have space for gardens grow food for, the, for themselves and donate the rest to people that need it more than, uh, more than we do. And that's not just talk, that's, that's working, that's been working for the last years. Brilliant. Wow, I'm so, I'm getting chills listening to you talking about this, this is so lovely. And you didn't know that when you started with that one pot and a packet of seeds, I keep coming back to that because... It just goes to show you don't have to start, you know, full throttle. You, you've created this from one small experiment and look at what's happening now and look at the change you're, you're creating. I'm generating, yeah. Growing. Generating, yeah. Growing. Yeah. You're growing. Um, yeah, you're literally growing this across Tokyo. Yeah, what could happen next? So it's really fantastic and we're, we're so thrilled to know more about this. And you might, you might have said I'm guilty of uh, plastering all this across the What's internet. But actually, I think you'll find it's not as well known as you thought and you're not as noisy and annoying as you potentially thought. So don't give up. Keep telling people what you're doing. And, yeah, I think that's really important to know well, that. Yeah. Well, and the bottom line here is that, uh, especially here in Vikram, the grandparents' um, generation here and the oldest generation, they're from the generation, they're from largely the, the last generation that commonly grew food. Mm -hmm. um, it's been the youngest two generations who live in, in the big cities 
in in Japan who have basically lost the motivation and not been taught how to grow food. The skills haven't been lost. They're they're largely embedded in the oldest generation that are largely still here. Yeah, they just haven't been passed down, and they haven't been passed down largely because, especially here in in like Tokyo, every supermarket's drowning in food. It's yeah. so, it's Why so, would you it's, grow so, it's, it's so accessible, it's so yeah. accessible. and there's yeah. so much of it. There's no need to grow your own fruit. But if you're concerned about personal health, then the game changes and it changes completely. And especially if you're concerned about the environment too. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Anything else then, John, coming up for you? Any crystal ball gazing on what you mm. think is going to be the future in Japan? Things that might be trending that you're seeing on your little radar there uh, within your work that you're doing or elsewhere that you think might be quite useful for other Kiwis listening in to think about? In terms of like the work that I do, I think um, urban farming is going to take off and it is taking off and the timing is perfect because um, people's awareness of climate change and sustainability is rapidly increasing and urban farming basically and like growing food without chemicals, it tackles uh, seven of these 17 SDGs just by growing food without chemicals. That's a, that's a big hit Whoa. just by basically gardening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the SDGs that are all the rage here right now, right? Yep. It's all about the SDGs, yes. Growing food without chemicals can be clearly promoted to companies who want to do more in that space. Oh. And if they couple that with um, food donations, then they can basically get a sustainability strategy and a community support one in one package, in one yeah, activity. Ticks a lot of boxes, doesn't um, it? And feed their staff healthier food as well. Yeah. That's mind blowing. I mean, a lot of the places that I visit, you know, factories or plants, they have big gardens, right? And they're, they're a lot of uh, Japanese style trees, et cetera. But imagine if some of those were just converted into a garden that the staff could play with when they're out at their lunch times or something. It becomes an activity that they do and generate back into the community. There's just it's just mind blowing what is possible. So how yeah. can people get hold of you, John? If they're really interested in this, and I certainly mm-hmm. hope they are, is there some way they can get hold of you? Or if they want to do their own urban garden, mm-hmm. is there some offer you might have for people who want mm-hmm. to get into that? How do, oh, they, yeah. how do they do yeah. that? People can basically find me on Facebook oh, you're all over the internet, aren't LinkedIn, you? Yes. Yeah. Uh, John Walsh. Yeah. And, um, and if they get in touch, um, I can basically provide um, urban farming services that can help them do anything and grow anything anywhere in the sun shines, uh, from garden installation to um, vertical farming, hydroponics, uh, teaching hmm. students, teaching families, teaching companies, teaching at schools. Great. Uh, yeah, and basically the sky's the limit at the moment. So it's uh, it's pretty exciting to be uh, doing what I'm doing. And like I said, the timing, the timing uh, coupled with the greater awareness of sustainability and environmental issues, uh, this couples into all of that. It slots in perfectly. And um, and also many people are becoming more concerned about what they eat, especially organic food, which is simply real food, food grown naturally. And that's all part of, of what I do too. And um, the bottom line is that if you want to grow food, sowing seeds is easier than brushing your teeth. So if, if you can brush your teeth without too much fat, <laughs> you can sow seeds and plant a garden. 
Super proud of you. I just love that you're teaching, helping to teach Japanese and foreigners here something that they didn't know that they needed. It's just brilliant, John. And we just want to congratulate you um, on helping people know about this, on being a Jandal in Japan, for sharing your story. I'm, I'm full of uh, enrichment now. I want to go and do it myself. I've got a little few pots, but I feel like yep. I'm excited to do more. So thank you so much for telling us yep. all about your tips for success for being a super person who's a Kiwi in the land of the rising sun. Thank you. Thanks a lot for your time. It's been fun. I loved hearing John's story about growing all this change in, in Tokyo. What a great story. I know. And sowing, sowing the seeds in his own little way that he did through spinach in a pot. I just yeah. love how that has now actually burst into what he's got now as a, as a business that's thriving. That amazing? Literally just growing. <laughs> also to go from saying he's not a teacher, never taught before, and he is now teaching children and others, adults as well, how to do mm. their urban farming. It's brilliant. Shows yeah. you, doesn't it, how you can go from not knowing what you're good at not knowing what you're looking for, not knowing what you're dreaming yeah. about. And actually it's right inside you and you never knew. Oh, impressive. Yeah. So his strategy has been to start with, like he obviously, he knew someone. So he started there and that's just led to where he is today with creating this network of schools that he works with. And he has mentioned that the international school network, which they needed that, right? Whereas potentially the Japanese schools are already doing a lot of this kind of farming in their curriculum anyway. So they don't really need John's help, but he noticed that this was missing from international schools. So even though he's in Japan, he's still working with a lot of international people. And there are a lot of the foreigners here to work with as well. Like when you come to Japan, you don't just have to work with Japanese people. There are foreigners mm -hmm. to work with here, right? It's a, totally right. a business he, in itself. You're right. He picked on somebody he'd already had a conversation with in the, oh. the article that he wrote about them and jumped on that as his first lead what a brilliant way to do it very very good i thought he had some real insights there on like his three p's were great weren't they <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> now those you're halfway there almost yeah, right promptness, professionalism and politeness politeness yes exactly that was really great i thought also the way he chose his partner was just Her. somebody hang on there Yep. made me really, really think about how do I assume that people may not be a good partner for my business or how would I think maybe they don't, they're another nationality, they couldn't possibly work with me as a New Zealander. He, he's moved all over that and got to somebody, found their heart and taken a chance in a way, but obviously working very, very well as, uh, for that as well. You never know who you might be uh, partnering with just around the corner. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, we're so thrilled to have gotten to know you more, John, through this episode. And we are very excited to see what happens next. We know you've got lots of plans and we will be keeping our eyes peeled to see how we can help if we can with our Jandals network. It's an ever-growing network of amazing people, isn't it, Catherine? Exactly. Go grow some more and give some more, just as John said. See you on yeah. the next episode. Thank you. Bye. Bye. listening make sure you check out our guests links in the show notes this podcast is brought to you today by Catherine o'connell law and pod launch with jane 
If you have a great story you think should be on the show, come and find us on LinkedIn or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time. Mata ne!